Hi, this is Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to The Essence of Cool. On today's show, we zoom to Vancouver and catch up with Men Without Hats' Ivan Dorischuk. Celebrating the 40th anniversary of their breakout album Rhythm of Youth and the enduring classic Safety Dance, Ivan tells us how the band was born and exactly how Safety Dance came to be. He also fills us in on their last two releases and how the great Howard Jones taught Ivan how to survive the rigors of the road. We also discovered why Ivan feels that Miles Davis and Justin Bieber are, wait for it, the same person. Yes, I have questions. We also encountered a bit of extraneous noise as a landscaper worked on Ivan's neighbor's yard, so apologies for that. But on that note, let's get started. We can dance, we can dance, everybody look at your hands. We can dance, we can dance, everybody's taking the chance. Save the dance, oh, let's save the dance. Ivan Dorischuk, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, First of all, I want to start by saying massive congratulations to the 40th anniversary of Rhythm of Youth. That's amazing. Safety Dance still gets the crap played out of it everywhere. (laughs) Very fortunate. Very lucky. Yeah. I mean, how does it feel 40 years on to have that still playing and still be, it's, it's like a meme now. You, you see it on Facebook all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the song, I've said this before, the song is, is uh, definitely bigger than, than I am or bigger than the band even. It's uh, sometimes I feel like a museum curator traveling around the world presenting this artifact that musical artifact that brings immense joy to people everywhere i go mm-hmm. so it's uh i just like i said i'm said before i'm fortunate and we're we're blessed to uh that i go to we play shows now and i have our original fans are there and they have their kids are with them and sometimes their grandkids are there too so it's uh, <laughs> that's awesome it's, uh, to, to be able to cross generations is just you know yeah. something you hope for but it's really cool when it happens yeah, no, you, you seriously hit the jackpot there for sure. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on on Rhythm of Youth or Safety Dance, but uh, I do want to ask, I heard, I think you mentioned it in an interview I was watching or reading or something, that uh, Safety Dance was born of you getting kicked out of an Ottawa club for pogoing. Is that right? Yeah, that's a true story. That's the that's the uh, origin story of, uh, of the song. Uh, it was the dying days of disco. Right. And... Uh, the DJs would invariably mix in a B-52s, Rock Lobster, or Blondie's Heart of Glass, or Devo's Satisfaction, and in the mix. And we'd get up there and start pogoing, jumping up and down, and, and nobody had ever seen that before. And we were bouncing off. It was the precursor of the slam dance of the, of the mosh pit and everything like that. And so, the, you know, the bouncers thought we were fighting and kicked us out. And <laughs> it happened more than once, and uh, so I, uh, I wrote an anthem for it. Wow. Do you remember which Ottawa club I asked because I'm here in Ottawa and I don't I don't remember what club it was, but uh, <laughs> I used to hang out in Ottawa quite a bit. You'd said in in an interview that early Men Without Hats, like pre Rhythm of Youth, was a Cramps cover band, which I think is the coolest. Uh, what changed that trajectory? I wanted to reach more people. You know, I was, we were doing, like like I say, a Crabs cover. We were doing, you know, Fred Frith, 
prepared guitar style, you know, like jams and, and all kinds of stuff. And, and I was at a point where I just wanted to reach more people. And I was a classically trained pianist. And uh, so one thing led to another. And I ended up, I've always said that, you know, I, I was also forefront and uh, in, in the forefront of the disco movement too. So my love of uh, progressive rock music, my love of disco and, and my, you know, being a classically trained pianist sort of all gelled together and gave me, you know, the new wave, the new wave thing that I was, uh, I guess, waiting to happen. And were there particular bands you were listening to that helped usher that in? There was bands like the Human Leagues, the bands that came, you know, right before, right, right before me. These are the bands that I was listening to, like the Human League when they, you know, before they had splintered off into Heaven 17 and, and the pop pop version of it and just anything that was out there that in the late seventies, you know, and I was, you know, we were listening to a lot of, I was listening to a lot of punk rock too. And we were listening to all, it was, it was, I always call it the sort of the punk, punk new wave movement because that, that was the bin in, in, you know, you go to A and A's or to Sam's and, and there'd be every, all the records and there'd be one bin in the way in the back in the corner of the store that said punk new wave. And that's where all the new records were. And that's how it was for shows too. We were we we'd play anywhere that we could, and it was usually we'd we'd end up with a bunch of punk bands. You know, there'd be like new wave bands playing with punk bands because that's the only place they could play. So, you know, bands, you know, punk punkers and new wavers were sharing the stage and sharing ideology too, and sharing you know sharing sharing a lot of stuff. So it was uh, it was great times. I was a big uh, punk fan and had my own little punk band. Um, went to a lot of the uh, the gigs in Toronto, born and raised in Toronto. Um, and of course, you know, hung out with uh, Steve Lucky and the Vile Tones and the Ugly and the Diodes and Teenage Head. Were there, did you have a couple of favorite punk bands in those days, Canadian punk bands? Those bands were also like, you know, coming to Montreal too and playing playing at the Hotel Nelson. So there was, like I say, it was, it was, it was fun times to be, to be alive and to be a musician. There was a lot of, a lot of creativity in the air, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. You yeah, know? for sure. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite pastimes uh, as a, a teenager growing up in Toronto was heading down to Young Street, uh, down Young Street on a weekend and going into all the little record shops and looking through particularly the delete bins, but uh, the other bins as well, but looking for cool covers, not knowing anything about the band and just buying them based on the cover. You did that too, did you not? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Do you, do you remember some of the the albums you bought? A lot of the uh, sort of uh, European, a lot of the, the Berlin school records, like Tangerine Dream and stuff like that, and just any anything that had a hypnosis cover on it, which was a company that was right. that, that made a lot of cool covers. We I would sort of buy, sort of trust them that if they were doing the cover, then the music would be good, you know? Yeah, it was like with Roger Dean and the Yes covers and stuff like that. Anybody who had a if, you know, I bought a budgie record just because they had a, a, a Roger Dean cover, you know, right. so it's like, uh, <laughs> it was that kind of thing. It was, uh, it was uh, a lot of exploring to be done pre-internet, you know. Well, there still is, because that's one of my, one of my hobbies now is, is dig I call it digital crate digging, you know, <laughs> just going on, going online and, and revisiting and re rediscovering and discovering for the first time bands that I missed yeah. back in the 70s and, you know, this, there's so I've said this before too. There's so many bands out there that you know that never got heard. That it's uh, it's almost sad sometimes to go and, and and check out all these bands. People that put their lives and their 
fortunes, their families and everything into this, into this thing called music and, yeah. and to disappear into the whatever place, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, uh, it, that's why I, I respect anybody who wants to be a musician. It's a, it's, it's not a, it's not an easy job sometimes, a lot of fun, but you know, yeah. a lot of sacrifices that have to be made that uh, you sort of realize along the way. Oh, isn't that the truth? Yeah. Yeah. The the, um, one thing I like about Spotify, I'm not a huge Spotify fan because I get paid nothing for all of the work I do. Um, But I do love, as you've alluded to, just sort of being able to go back and check out albums that either I missed or haven't heard in ages and have them at my fingertips. It's wonderful. But uh, sadly, you know, the, the artist isn't getting paid what they're worth for me listening to the tracks um as as a synth pop artist myself i notice and maybe it's just because i'm looking to hear it but it seems like there's a lot more synth around these days you know bands like the weekend or artists like the weekend who are embracing sort of 80s style synth pop is it just me or is there a synth revival happening no definitely that we we use we use weekend cds to balance our our, our our live board you know oh wow that's that's i think i attribute that one of the reasons why i can still go out there and and perform live too and why people are still into my music is because there's there's so much 80s influence in pop music these days from synths to the 80s drum sounds the robot voices the, just everything it's the and the tunes are coming back too like the, the, there's actually melodies are coming back which is one of the reasons i think 80s music is still popular because it was very tuneful there's a lot of songs that sounds like a lot of sing-alongs you know? right great melodic hooks and great synth hooks too yeah uh much like and we'll get into this in a little bit but much like again part two wall-to-wall hooks just in, what an incredible album but we'll talk about that in a minute wow. um you've had a couple of songs that have endured uh, the decades, uh, safety dance, of course, uh, pop goes the world. My friend uh, Carol Pope has had a few of those as well. Back with her band Rough Trade, had a couple of pretty big hits. Gets played, which get played all the time. And like safety dance, pop goes the world, uh, even sideways. Uh, they get played a lot on you know the booms of the world and uh, some of the the oldies, so called oldies stations. Um, one of the things that she struggles with, though, is getting her new stuff played. Do you have the same struggle? Yeah, well, I mean, that's just just how it is. You know, that's um, when we were growing up, uh, Frank Sinatra was having trouble getting his new stuff played, too. You know, it's like when, like when we were making our music. It's just it's it's it, it, it is harder. It is harder. There is. It's funny because we go we play some we, we play quite a bit live now and and a lot of the live tours that we do like some of them are packages like they're packages with other bands 80s packages and definitely the bands that go over better are the ones that play their old stuff and not the ones who are trying to push their new record and that's uh, quite a fact there are bands that are, have even been told on those tours like hey can you play some forget about the new stuff and you play like by the by the the agents and the the, the, the bookers are telling them to drop the new album and, and play the old stuff you know so, which is is 
really sad because um, when we take Men Without Hats, for example, yes, you've got a slew of great hits from uh, the, the 80s and 90s, but you also have a ton of great new music. As I said, again, part two is just spectacular. Like there isn't a song that doesn't have a great melodic hook or great synth hook or both, well, usually both. Um, so why is it such a struggle to take one of those songs and get played alongside Safety Dance or Pop Goes the World? There's only a limited limited amount of space on the top 40, you know. There's only 40 places. There's not unlimited places. So there's a lot of new kids making records, you know. There's 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 a whole there's four or five decades of people making behind me making that have been making records, you know. They need some room at the table too. They're already playing my old stuff. It's, you know, I under, I understand the problem, but I under I understand it new music has to get a chance to be heard too so new people create the young people created venues for their music you know there's they created new new venues there's always it's a cycle you know so we either have to fit in or create our own our own sort of new venues for our own music which is coming up i mean there are like sort of vintage playlists now and and vintage like i said vintage tours vintage playlists and right there's just a lot more people at the table now it's i mean it's it's easier to get your new stuff being played too when you're 25 years old and you got a full head of hair and you're like, you know, (laughs) ready to bust a move. Then, you know, when you're coming, coming in there, like, you know, with your, uh, you know, when you're a card carrying senior, you know, so I don't know. I'm just, uh, I'm playing, I'm being a devil's advocate here because I I hear her. I hear Carol. I love Carol. And and I hear exactly that. We go, we're going through the same thing. You know, I thought I had, I got put out a new record. I made sure that every song there could be played on the radio. But that's my, you know, my conception of radio. That's that's what I'm still relating to what I thought, you know, how my songs worked back then. I'm still writing songs the way I wrote them back then. You know, I learned how to write songs from the Beatles. Right. You know, like, you know, how their their song structure, they were my teachers. So I'm I'm still writing songs like that. But now I'm listening to like, you know, Billie Eilish and all these new kids coming out and writing and, and I'm listening to the way they write songs and. I'm going, well, that, you know, it works, you know, it works. It doesn't have to be, there's, there's no, nothing's, you know, written in stone. And, and, and I'm sort of modifying my sort of songwriting to sort of, you know, fit the times too a bit, you know, not, okay. not wanting to stray too far, but, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's a process. I mean, it's just, it's all, it's a cycle too. I mean, everything goes around. We're back to where we were with the Beatles now anyway, because now you don't have to put out an album. You can put it out, you can release one song at a time, right. the way the Beatles did. They released, they'd released, you know, 10 singles. And when they released 10 singles, they put them all together on an album and put out the album, right. which was just all the singles they'd released that year and start making more singles. Yeah. And so that's kind of where we're at now. So, so yeah, I, I tend to look uh, in my own writing, I'm looking backwards and forward. I'm, I mean, I certainly look back to a lot of the great 80s bands, including you guys, uh, for, for inspiration, what I'm writing. But I'm also looking ahead at, you did mention Billie Eilish. I'm listening to her. I listen to uh, Halsey, uh, listen to Sassy 009, um, who, yes, they're, they're sort of changing the way pop music is written these days, but they have a lot of really interesting ideas. Um, people like, you know, Ed Souza and um, uh, Lisa's bit new um, who are putting together tours and shows across Canada have this tendency to sort of, as you had alluded to earlier, sort of uh, matching sort of um, legacy act with legacy act. So, and I know you played with Howard Jones and Human League and B-52s. Is there a 
a push to try to match yourself with somebody newer to open up your audience a bit? Oh, that's uh, yes. We we're definitely going down that road. I think that would be a great idea. I'm just I'm just you know waiting for the right person to come along and say hey, you know. But I think I think it would I think it'd be great. I think I would I would jump at the occasion to open up for like you know the weekend or like right. Know, we we we'd fit. There's tons of Canadian bands, young Canadian bands. Like Metric is a band that 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 I think we'd fit really good with. That's definitely an avenue we're trying to pursue. Yeah, you know it's it's the uh, I can always remember watching uh, watching PBS when I was like a teenager and watching these old soul reviews on TV and watching them right. wheel out these like one hit wonders after you know and I'm going saying oh boy hope I never end up there you know <laughs> and and so now we're doing these we're doing these 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 eighties and but the fact is is that the people love it the people are are. They get it's it's a great package. You know, there'll be like four or five bands. Each band's playing playing four or five hits. People get they get twenty five songs a night, and it's it's like their twenty five favorite songs. You know, right? And uh, so it's the the amount of joy that we create that that we're it's 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 I mean it's amazing. You know, it's like it's it's and these people, the people, the demographic that's out there are you know like they're at the age where they want their, you know, it's, it's not the last hurrah, but their, their kids have left home. Right. You know, they have some disposable income. They want to, they want to have some fun, you know, before it's too late. And, and like I say, when the occasion, you know, lets it be possible, they bring their kids and their grandkids too. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good. I mean, I, we, we, we did eighties cruises, right. which were like complete. I've never, I've never been on a cruise in my life. And it was like it was the most one of the most fun things I've ever done, you know. Yeah. And uh, we were we we we'd heard about the sort of there had been this Def Leppard horror story or something like that where they they had done this cruise they'd done one of the first cruises like hard drive and, and they'd gotten sort of mobbed and cornered and like on the ship oh, no. and they were like <laughs> it was this complete horror story. And when we did it, the the the, the people were just completely a joy everybody was just completely respectful there was there was no i didn't feel intruded upon whatsoever i was you know when it was it was just great it was just a lot of fun and like i say people people are there to have fun they're not and the people that are playing are also a lot more relaxed too like what's what's cool about this sort of legacy sort of tours are are that the, the bands aren't competing anymore back in the days you got to admit it was like being on a hockey team, you know, yeah, and we love the spoons, but we definitely didn't want their single to be higher than ours. Right. You know? <laughs> so that's you know, but that's all gone now. I mean, that's still, like we're no, nobody's fighting. Nobody's like we're not like we're, we're not each like fighting for the top ten spot for our single. We're not fighting for record sales. We're just, we're we're just out there to have a great time. Right, gonna have. Have fun and make people happy. Your brother Colin is back working with you, and he's sort yeah. of been on and off throughout the you know, forty years of of Men Without Hats. And it's great to see that he's back again. What is it like now, especially at at this age, working with family in terms of working on the productions and and the performances? Well, it's like everything else. It's a lot more relaxed, you know. Like um, you can imagine. Being in a band with, you know, we were at, at our at our height. We were like uh, it was three brothers and a gay guy. Yeah. <laughs> so the tour bus had a 
a lot of good conversations on that tour bus, let me tell you. Oh, to be a fly <laughs> on the wall of that bus. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the, the two most recent releases, um, again, part one and again, part two which are vastly different from each other, although still both in, you know, uh, solidly in the synth pop vein. Uh, part one is, uh, talk about that first. It's a five song EP, all covers, including a reimagining of Safety Dance, which I thought was fantastic, by the way. Um, but you kick off with two songs. Now, you have to understand, I am a huge Bowie fan, huge Lou Reed fan, huge Mott the Hoople fan. And to, to kick off uh, with uh, Satellite of Love and Dudes blew me away. First, I thought, okay, he's going to do a synth pop version of these songs. How is that going to go down? And then I listened to them and they kick ass. They're wonderful. What made you decide to choose those two, those two songs in particular? Big Lou Reed fan, like like, like yourself, big big Bowie fan. Um, on my honeymoon, when we saw Lou Reed in Rome, it's, it's, wow. I've always been a big, huge Lou Reed fan. And uh, the Bowie song, All the Young Dudes, same thing. We were, we were the dudes. I mean, that was us. Dudes, especially. Uh, <laughs> it's like 140 BPM. It's just rocking, man. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't sure myself if it was going to work, but it was just. It was just a lot of fun to play. And when when that's my sort of criteria. When it's if it's still fun, you know how many you know how many times. I mean, you're a musician. You know how many times you got to play these songs before you put them on record. So I figured if, if by the, the three thousandth time, if I'm still smiling while I'm sort of tracking it, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it works. Uh, the another one that's on there is uh, "Blow It High Doe" by Tragically Hip, which again I thought to myself, okay, <laughs> but heard it and it was great. And one of the cool things is that uh, the way you sing it, you kind of mm -hmm. sound like Gord. Yeah, mm -hmm. it just came. Well, that song. I mean, that was well, it's, it's my favorite tragically hip song I, mean, I, I i love the hip and it was i went to their first tour i mean i i, I remember hearing that song and like who is this you know way back then and right. canadian band tragically hip oh wow oh they're coming to town okay i'll go see them so went and, and hung out with them after the show and everything like that and, and it just like cool following them since then you know just just watching them their everything they've done and everything and it's it's just a they're a great great band and um yeah, and Gordon is a great, great songwriter, great lyricist, and uh, Incre incredible performer. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I like millions of other Canadians watch that final show, and uh, my, my, my eyes were just filled with tears at the end. It was just yeah. you know, it was so emotional. Um, part two, um, just released this year. And uh, so, first of all, it's completely different. It's, it's uh, uh, original songs at tw 12 or so, 12 original yeah. songs. Um, and all really slick, great synth pop numbers could have been released in 1982, uh, could have all been number one hits. I mean, they're brilliant. Uh, so great to hear that that's your, your aim was to write really solid singles and mm -hmm. you accomplished that. Over the years, you've kind of 
changed a little bit. Uh, there was a big change in the 90s when you did Sideways and you had that hard, uh, edgier sound, which I thought was really cool, worked really, really well, but was very different, was not the Men Without Hats that we, we knew, right? right. Um, and, but you've come back solidly into synth pop and really embracing it, which is wonderful. Um, what possessed you? Like, what was the, the inspiration to, to do that? I wanted to, with the last record we did, we, we did a record in 2012, Love in the Age of War. And that was, I like, there's when I started, I wanted to consciously get back to our original sound, you know, just get, get back to the techno thing. And uh, so I got together with Dave Ogilvy and, and, and we put that thing together. This time the plan was to do a, an electro, you know, electro pop record, but to make it more like pop goes the world. Mm-hmm. to make it more just, you know, the same, same songwriting and everything like that, but just do exactly what we did, like the, the difference between Rhythm of Youth and, and Pop Goes World. I wanted the, that to be the difference between Love and the Age of War and, again, Part 2. And it just meant more more orchestration, more, you know, tracks. The, we, we kept it, the, the Love and the Age of War in 2012, we, we actually limited ourselves. We, we tried, you know, we... Sometimes we went over a bit, obviously, but we, we tried to keep it to 24 tracks. We tried to make it using only the number of tracks that we would have been able to use back then. In the tape days, yeah. And uh, so we never went, we never went much over that, you know, and so that's it. And so it does sound like that. It sounds, it's very, it's a lot sparser. This time we let ourselves go. We, that was, and that's what happened between Rhythm of Youth and Pop Goes the World. There was a big technological sort of advance in the music world there was there was the uh, midi happened right MIDI i remember happened. yeah it did. everything on rhythm of youth was played by hand there was no sequences there was the rhythm box was the only thing and everybody else was playing live to the rhythm box the bass was being done manually everything was being so it gives it that kind of has kind of a human kind of balance to it almost as a kind of a little it, it does it's not really kind of metronome mm. and uh after that, MIDI came through. So when we went in to make Pop Goes the World, we had, you know, we, we had, like, you could use a million synthesizers at once. You could have, like, play one note, it would activate, you know, 18 synths and, you know, create these huge wall of sounds. And so that's that's what we did. That's that's kind of, and, and, and that's kind of the difference I wanted between these, the, these two last records. So mm-hmm. we just went all out with the, Again, part two, we didn't put any kind of restraints or any kind of restrictions on ourselves. We just said, as long as it's all done by, you know, by machines and by synths and everything like that, let's, let's just go for it. Yeah. Um, one of the other differences, I think, on this album is that you produced it all yourself. And I look back over your discography and there have been a number of producers involved. Uh, Mark Duran, famously on the first two Zeus, Zeus held on the third and Pop Goes the World. Uh, Stefan, your brother, uh, produced a couple of them. Dave, as you mentioned, Dave Rave, Skinny Poppy fame, uh, produced the, uh, the one in uh, Love in the Age of War. Um, but this one is is all you guys, is, is, is you, uh, Colin, and show. Um, but, you know, what's funny is it struck me that 
the sound I was hearing was very similar to like a Trevor Horn production, like early ABC or Frankie Goes to Hollywood, that kind of crystal clean, well-articulated, well-constructed sound that was just, everything was popping out at you, which was wonderful. Nothing was sort of buried in the back. Um, why did you decide, number one, to produce it yourself? And what is the advantage of doing that over pulling in somebody from you know, outside? Well, the reason we wanted to do ourselves was because we wanted to, I wanted to spend the time it took to make the record. So we did it, we really did it the kind of old school uh, rock and hey, you roll. You rented like a house or something for six yeah. or eight months? and Yeah, we just rented a huge house on the like on the top of a mountain, no neighbors, nothing. Right. And, uh, and we all lived there and just built the, built the studio, put all our gear and, you know, our mobile into the, into the living room. We were overlooking, you know, the Pacific Ocean. It was awesome. Wow. It was just great. And that was it. Just just get up and make music and just make There's nothing else to do. There's nowhere to go. We were on the edge of a hill. There was You couldn't even go for a walk. And uh, so that was it. And and just that's what I wanted to do, just spend the time. I, I figure, you know, like we've made enough records with enough people that knew how to make records. I've been, you know, like even my solo record I made with um, John Punter, was it? And it was like... And he was like, wow, it was like, that was like going to school. Like that was like every day I'd go in there and he'd tell me stories about making records with Brian Ferry and you know, like all these guys. And we just like amazing, you know, and yeah. Dave was like that day. Dave had a million stories and, and right. Zoe's had a million stories. And that's, that, that was the thing about going there is, is, is learning, you know, and, and learn and going into an, into a big studio and, and learning the studio and, learn, you know, hearing the people making records at the hit factory in New York and, and, uh, being in the room where John Lennon was the night, you know, the night, his last night, you know, right, right. making a record in there and just, just having that vibe yeah. and just knowing that kind of, it, it, it influences the way you make the music too. Yeah. This time, but we, we, we'd been through all those experiences and, that, and we just thought that this time was the time that we, it was time for us to try it. We knew we had not enough ideas. We, we couldn't think of anybody that we wanted to work with who would make it sound the way we wanted to, because that's, Kind of what you look at in a producer now these guys have their sound and you kind of go in and you plug into their sound it's not them it's not it's not producers trying to cultivate band sounds now it's bands trying to get the producers sound you know right so we we um we just thought it was time you know it was time for us to to do it ourselves we were each the three of us each have different areas of expertise that complement each other really really well I was on the music, Joe was on the engineer sound, right. making sure it was down on tape well, and, and Colin was kind of the, the, the mastermind, like sort of overseeing the whole project. He, was, he, he did a lot of the producing, the actual producing, put, putting, making sure that everything does sound crystal clear and it's not, nothing is stepping on each other, you know? Right. So, um, so it was good. That was that's that's it turned out really well. We're looking forward to the next one. We're already working on the next stuff and and uh, oh, awesome! Working on the you know the same way. And it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's did been, you have anybody come in after the fact just to as a safety, just to listen and say, oh, you know what, guys, you did a great job. We had it mastered by Greg Reilly, and and he's a he's you know he's a uh, an old time pro guy. He's you know he's mastered like a million records, and so. We, we were counting on him kind of like there was, the, you know, we'd send him tracks to sort of get his opinion. Like, how is this, you know, like, 
we were sending him tracks like for technical advice, you know, advice. Is there enough headroom for you to master this? Are we needing right. you enough? You know, that, that type of stuff. And he was giving us his opinion, like saying, oh, this, no, this, this is good. This is all sounding, everything's sounding good. And he'd give us, he'd tell us if there was something, you know, your base is, you know, could be a bit bigger or it's a bit too big or that type of thing. It was, it was he was the guy, he was, but he, he also, you know, he mastered it. So he did a good job. One of the, uh, the tax tasks I give myself when I'm creating my own tracks is to show restraint because there's a tendency, because I love big production. You know, and there's the tendency to, with all of these wonderful sounds at your fingertips, to just kind of pile it on, right? Try to make it as big as possible, but sometimes less is more. <laughs> Did you run into that, or were you yeah. say, like, throw caution to the wind? You, me, you, me, and Tracy Howe, same problem. Tracy always talks about that too. He's always like, hey, he's always like, hey, Ivan, don't, don't like, doesn't just bugs you. You know, you, you start off, and I know I do the same thing. You start off, you got like one bass line, a little, little drum going. And I got a vocal, and I need one little string on top. It's done. That's great. It's going to be awesome, you know. And then at the end of the day, it's like right. three million tracks. And it's always the same thing. It's always the same. Yeah. Thing. Um, again, part two is really is a, a great album. I can't. Uh, I cannot understate it. Um, just another day, heaven. If the world should end today, love inside your love inside your heart was going through my brain just as you came on. So, um, but it was ten years for you to get to that point. Why did you wait so long? Don't know. I was just I was having too much fun touring. I guess it was like um, it, it's, it's actually the fans that kind of pushed us. We were like fans kept people kept writing me and saying like are you guys gonna put up a new record come on put it something new you have 10 years 10 years this and that and uh we just said finally okay and uh it, we started off the project so so when when we decided about three years ago we decided to make a new record i i my, my our plan was to make a i didn't really have any songs really ready i didn't really have any didn't wasn't really planning on making a record so why don't we just make something for the fans and i'll do a a piano vocal ep do covers do some you know do reimagine some hat songs and do a couple of covers and 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 we'll put that out for the fans and we'll keep them you know until i until i really get inspired to make a new record that'll keep them going keep them satisfied and so from that we started off doing that and and i started off we did uh did safety dance i had antarctica done a bit differently too a couple couple of hot songs and then that's when we i put together tragically hip and when i did the tragically hip solo on piano and we recorded it and i listened to it and i said you know what i'd really like to hear what that sounds like with a full memo without has tree right and I do that. So we did. We just started working on it, and we put together, and we worked on it. And we said, "Ah, oh, yeah." As soon as I had done that, I couldn't go back to the piano right. project. And we, and that's what—that's the thing that got us going on this whole project. It was that it was that song? One uh, was it part one or part two? That was, I guess, part one that was originally intended as all piano and vocal. Yeah. So I we started off the um, project was started off just as a piano and vocal thing, and the plan was to make do a couple of covers and then do a couple of reimaginations of of hat songs so i did the safety dance i did antarctica i did a couple more and then we started working on the covers and after i did the uh, tragically hip song we sat back and listened to it piano and vocal and i just said i, I really got to hear what that sounds like with a full man without hats treatment <laughs> and so we, we recorded the whole thing with the full band and uh, decided that that's what we were going to do that was the direction that the 
that the full thing was going to take. Couldn't go back to the piano and vocal thing. It was, it was, we had to go with this. And so that's what, uh, what, what launched um, the EP. And the 2000 Light Years From Home was, um, we'd been playing that one live for a couple of years. And so that was, it was a crowd pleaser. So we, it was a no brainer to include it on the, on the EP and uh, Safety Dance was, was done. We had, the only thing I had to come up with was the Satellite of Love and uh, all the young dudes. And we can dance. Out of control, we can dance. We can dance. They're doing it from pole to pole. We can dance. We can dance. Everybody, look at your hands. We can dance. We can dance. Everybody's taken the chance. It's safe to dance. And uh, but we had we had a lot more we had and that's what we're working on the next uh, the part three is already uh, it's it's got we have a, a couple of new covers that we had back then from the from the piano uh, from the piano project we work and put a couple more on the King Crimson cover it's going I think people are going to like so title album title suggestion again and again and again. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, so as much as I would love to hear the piano and vocal version, I'm so glad you did the full uh, hats treatment because they're, they're just real barn burners. I absolutely love what you did. Um, my friend... Yeah, the hip, we had to get the Tragically Hips permission to do it. They liked it. I heard that they don't usually let people, they don't let too many people cover their songs. It was a, quite an honor for them to let us do it. Somebody gave, gave Midjur a copy. He was doing... I guess on the same tour as they, his, he does the show in Toronto and uh, by himself. Right. And so in the States, one of, one of, uh, one of my friends on Facebook went and saw him and gave him a copy of the record, bought a copy of the record and gave it to him. So I got a picture, picture of mid-year holding my, holding the EP. Now he's um, been playing like crazy, just as you guys have, have you guys hooked up to play together? Not yet. No, we were supposed to do it. There was one tour a couple of years ago that we were supposed to be on it, but it, it never materialized. But, um, yeah, no, he's he's being booked by the same same people that that we're dealing with too. So it's it shouldn't be too long before it's uh, maybe on a cruise. <laughs> Just quickly, um, you know, you have been a real road dog for the last ten years. Does it get old, or do you still love it? I love it. I love it. I um, like people just say, "Don't you get tired of singing those songs?" I just never. Wow. Just the, the the smile on people's faces is 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 enough and uh i mean it's it, it's until i can't do it anymore it's it's, it's what else would i want to do it's 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 traveling all over the world we've been to more places now than we went the first time around like I, the first time around we sort of concentrated on on north america we never we never we went to germany we played in, in germany but we never we never did europe properly we never went anywhere else this time i mean South Africa, South America, Australia, you know, Scandinavia twice. It's, you know, Europe, it's been, you know, we've been to more places this time. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, every now and again, you dabble lyrically in, you know, comments on society and the, the state of the world. Um, the human race is one that certainly suggests like you have some concern about, you know, how poor stewards we are of this earth. How are you feeling about the state of the world these days? 
it's kind of you know it's it, the, the problems are the same ones that i've been singing about since like forever kind of it's like you know pop goes the world was kind of people are concerned about the same things now and um i just uh try to make music to to help people uh you know enjoy their stay are you optimistic or hopeful well i'm always optimistic it's always uh you know we, things are bad but things uh things have always been worse mm. uh, i just wanted to note a friend of mine aaron badgley uh is a DJ on a couple of stations, but he's also a writer for The Spill Magazine in Toronto. And he did a review of uh, part two, and he said it was near perfect. That's got to feel pretty good, eh? Thank you. Because <laughs> it is. It's a great album. <laughs> I mean, you guys were at the forefront of music video. I mean, it was pretty much like much music was created for you because you, you did Safety Dance and it just blew up. Um, how are you feeling about the role of the, the music video today? Well, I think that its role has been taken over by social media. Right. You know, back in the, back in the days, I mean, that was, that's all there was. I'll always remember being on tour in the States, that was somewhere in New York and going into a, uh, having the tour bus stop in front of a grocery store so we could get, go out and get some, 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 some supplies. And so I go into the store and I grab my stuff, grab my, grab my food and I go to, go to pay and I go to the cashier and the cashier, like young girl, and she points at me, <laughs> it's him, ah, it's him. Ah. And I was like, the first thing that got into my mind was she's mistaken me for somebody who held up the store before. Right. <laughs> I didn't know what the fuck was going on. You know, I had no idea. That was, a, well, that's what I was thinking. She's like, she's, She's, she's confusing me with somebody. She thinks I'm a bad guy, but I'm like, she's got the wrong guy. It's him! <laughs> other, other employees come over. What's wrong? What's wrong? It's him! It's the guy from the video! <laughs> and then I realized that I went, whoa! And I just dropped everything. I ran back into the bus and my life has never been the same. <laughs> you know? So, but it was, yeah. uh, it's cool. I mean, it's like, it, it was undeniably a major part in what happened with the song i think the the fact that the song was like this new wave song and everybody was expecting some guy with spiky hair and zippers and pointy boots to, you know and pink right. pink jacket to come out there and deliver it and the fact that they got peter pan or the pipe <laughs> piper or something you know whatever it was i think that's that that sort of helped the song a lot too and that's that's also what why people can still watch it now you can still watch the video and Kind of, you know, if you've never seen it before, you wouldn't know it was an '80s video. You know? Oh, it's very timeless. Yeah. So that was that was a great thing about it. Now, did did I read correctly that you are planning on or have been thinking of going back to England and doing a reshoot of it? Yeah, we were going to go and shoot um, "No Friends of Mine," the Safety Dance Part Two, but uh, that was sort of pre-COVID, and so during COVID, it was just too 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 much of a mess, too hard. You've toured with uh, Howard Jones, and that it was him who taught you how to sort of deal with the rigors of the road. Is that correct? And if so, what was it that he said? Well, it was, yeah, it was, um, he, he, I just, just watching him, just touring with him, he enjoys what he does. He didn't seem to have a bad moment, you know, and like in touring kind of mean, like you've toured and people, it's a, there's a lot of downtime. 
you know right it's like it's it, there's a lot of downtime and and you know so whatever he just he just showed me that that you know it, it's your life and how to make it how to make it sort of i don't know just how to make it more normal how to make being on the road more, more of a normal thing more of a enjoyable thing the sound checks were like like i don't even go to sound check you know i don't do sound checks and he would go and spend like like five hours at sound check it was a big huge thing and then have a big meal after and then to go and you know, and, then, and do an interview, and then it was just—it was fun for him all the time, all the time. Right. A lot of other bands are just wasting time, you know. And he just showed—he just showed me that, that that you know, it's it's fun, and, and life is fun, and, and yeah. just, he was just such a—he's a real positive force to be around too. He's just a, just a one of these guys. You don't. There's a lot of uh, a lot of musicians. I imagine you know, it's like a lot of bums, and he's—he's—he's yeah. uh, he's, he's one of the good ones, you know. So it's 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 always a joy to be around somebody who enjoys what he does, who does it honestly, who does it like just puts himself into it and and, and just not complain. I mean, you don't even know what the word complain means. You know? He always seems to have a smile on his face. He he looks like one of those guys that enjoys every second of life. Yeah. He soaks it all up. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's just he's always and he's 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 curious. He's always asking questions. He's paying attention. He's listening. He's not a guy who comes in there and starts talking about himself and you know telling people what it is. He's empathetic. He's you know just great. He's just a, just a just a beautiful human being to be around. And, and in this business, there's a lot of sharks, and it's always nice when you're next to a, a, a non-shark. Yes, indeed. <laughs> On that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into one of Ivan's picks of the essence of cool. Justin Bieber, I have some questions. <laughs> we'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to the essence of cool. As an independent podcast, we rely wholly and completely on support of listeners like you. If you like what you hear, please help keep us on the air and throw a few bucks in our electronic tip jar. You can find it on the front page of our website, theessenceofcool.com. We truly appreciate your help. Now let's get back to the show. We're back with Ivan Dorischuk of Men Without Hats. And we're going to jump into one of the two picks that you've chosen for The Essence of Cool. But before I get to that, I want to ask you what your definition of cool is. I've, I've read, you, what was it you said? You said, today's cool is tomorrow's fool. Yeah. But what, but what, is, what is the definition of cool that is lasting? I don't know if there is one, because I've always lived by that maxim. I've always tried, uh, I don't know. It, it, trying to be cool is uh, kind of a, it, it, I, I view it as a, uh, a certain way to get, it's, it's, it's the uh, definite way to get egg on your face. Well, in previous conversations on the show, we've, uh, past guests have had a number of ways to define cool. And for the most part, people agree that cool often means that an artist is ever-changing, is uncompromising, doesn't care what the fans or the critics think. And, you know, I think about people like David Bowie or Joni Mitchell or Lou Reed, whose cool, for me, seems to endure the years. Lou is as cool to me today as he was when I first heard him in 1972 on the, that live album. You don't, don't agree? I stand by my words. Okay. I used to think that, I used to think that high rise uh landlubber white landlubber bell-bottom jeans were cool <laughs> and i had like a serious testicular camel toe happening like even back then 
<laughs> I would look down and sort of question myself, even at 16 years old. But it was cool, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't wear my bell bottoms anymore, but <laughs> but certainly in 1976, I thought they were pretty damn cool. So talk to me about Justin Bieber then. Um, how did you first hear of him? Or what what was it that you heard that brought Justin's attention, Justin to your attention? Well, the reason I chose Justin Bieber as as sort of my thing cool is because I chose Miles Davis as my other, as my other, you know, if there was you asked for two choices. And I've all I always tell people that for me, Justin Bieber and Miles Davis. It's the same person. It's really? It's the same guy. Yeah. Um, one's black how, and one's white. So? But uh, because they're entertainers, they're entertainers. And, and I'm the same guy, too. Right. And the music is irrelevant. The music is completely, completely irrelevant. The thing that matters is that they're entertaining people and that the people that listen to them are entertained. Hmm. And that's I used to think that my role in the music industry, I used to think when I was 25 years old that the pop top 40 chart was the biggest political platform in the world. Mm, yeah, I still do. I still do. I just, what has changed is my role within it. Now, you know, before when I used to, I was a uh, very angry and very concerned and I used to want it. I wanted change and I wanted it now and I mm. uh, was prepared to, you know, go to the wall for it. And now I'm more, now I think more like the closest I quote I can come from is from Alice Cooper. And he goes, rock and roll is about freedom. And to have people follow what I say, just because I'm a celebrity, is the first thing from freedom and rock and roll that there is. Mm. And that's how I feel too. Like, you're here to listen to my music, like listen to my music. But as far as me telling you what I think about global warming and COVID and Justin Trudeau and on and on and on and on, it's not my place. Because that's why I've like Alice Cooper said, if I, you know, if, if you're going to follow me just because I'm me and you, you like my music and you, you're going to, you know, you want to know what I, what I think so you can follow what I think, that's, that's anti-rock and roll, completely anti-rock and roll. And so that's, that's kind of how I feel. Okay. In interesting. Uh, there's um, a Tokyo DJ who long time, when I first started my band, Church of Trees, was playing our music. And he made uh, a point of saying, and I guess somebody had sent him a track that was rather political. And he, he said, if your music contains political views, I will not play them. And lo and behold, I'd written a song called Like Gary Newman on the second, our second album that has some pretty um, staunch political views in terms of being anti-Trump, etc. And he stopped playing me. And is that how far you would take it? Well, I don't believe in censorship. You see, I believe in freedom. Right. I don't believe in censorship. I, 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 my, the thing that drives me is freedom. And that's why I, be, I became a musician and a rock star, because I, when I had to look around and, and find the job that allowed me to live the most by my principles, it was this. You, so you said that Miles and Justin are pretty much one and the same, except they're different colors. But the one thing that distinguishes, in my mind, that distinguishes Miles from, from Justin, Justin is certainly an entertainer first and foremost. That seems to be his stock and trade. Miles seemed to, be, seemed to exist to push the boundaries of jazz because he pushed it in five different, over the course of five de decades. Yeah, no, undeniable. pushed it pushed it significantly five times. He had the leader. And he had the, all the leaders of, of the fusion 
jazz fusion movement of the three top bands in the fusion movement. He had all those guys in his band at the same time. Yeah. It's incredible. Incredible. No, I, right. I, I hear you. He's, 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 but what, what's, what stops you from saying that, that Justin Bieber isn't pushing the boundaries of hip hop? You know, you, you write in a sense, because I look at, look at his career and he certainly dabbled in various world musics. He's uh, he got into country, got into Latin, got into gospel, got into Afrobeat, kind of very sort of Paul Simon-ish, in fact. Um, so I guess from that perspective, he was kind of pushing pop music, pushing the boundaries of pop. Um, but I don't know if I would put him in the same category as Miles Davis. I, I put every musician in the same category. You see, I put like it's all, we're all the same. We're entertainers. The, right. the, the music doesn't is is it's subjective. Yeah, completely subjective. So you can't really you can't say he's better than him. He's like, um, well, not that he's better, but ju just that his do, people do think they do think Miles Davis is better. I myself even think, well, you know, as far as musicians go, Miles Davis better. Than blah blah blah. But it's wrong, you know, because it's it's snobbery. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, you're right. Um, but I just, I guess, I tend to think that Miles's music has a durability. It will endure the years. Whereas I don't like. I see fifty years from now, uh, I'm certain that people will still be talking about Miles Davis. I'm not so sure people will be talking about Justin Bieber. Oh yeah, no, I, I say it all the time, like. Can you think? Do you think in fifty years in the future, people are going to be singing Eminem songs around the campfire? Right. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, is there something about uh, other than being a great performer? Is there something about Justin and his career that you really applaud or you appreciate? He's still around. He's still around, and that's one thing I met. I met um, Andrew Lou Goldham. Oh, right. Rolling Stone producer. Yeah. And he's a good friend of shows, actually. Oh, wow. And I met him through show. And uh, the first thing he said to me, first thing out of his mouth, you made it. Yeah. You made it. Oh, true enough. Eh? Still alive, you know? Yeah. And uh, and that's it. I mean, it's just like, I've seen the, the you know, I've had, I've, I've had the hit and then, and then the non-hit and then the hit again and then non-hit, you know? So I've seen how people treat you on the way up. I've seen them, how they treat you on the way down. I've seen how they treat you on the way up the second time. I've seen how they treat you on the way down the second time. Even. You know, it's like, yeah. I've, I've seen how the, how, how people are. And so it's, uh, but it's, it's part and parcel of the business. I mean, that's you, 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 there's another maxim that I live by. I was one of my first managers, Robbie Ditchburn, when I was still in a band called heaven 17 and uh, said, you know, you go to a Chinese restaurant, you get Chinese food. So that's kind of how the rock and roll business is. You can't complain, you know. It's like if you're gonna be in this business to start complaining about stuff. Like, man, man, uh, you're in the wrong business. So, is there anything that you take from Justin musically as inspiration? I couldn't even hum you a Justin Bieber song. I don't know if I would recognize one. I don't know if I would recognize a Justin Bieber song if I heard it on the radio. I don't. I don't know a title of a song. It's like. It's my 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 uh, argument is purely uh, philosophical. Okay, fair enough. And what about Miles Davis? I mean, he like I said before, like I was a big fusion fan too. So for the guy to have like, you know, like John McLaughlin playing guitar, well, Herbie Hancock and Joe Zawinul and like, Chick Corea playing keyboards and like, like just everybody was in his band. You know, like the, the leaders of Return to Forever. Right. 
uh, weather report and the Mahavishnu Orchestra all at the same time. Amazing. And so it's like I saw I, I saw Miles play um, just before he died. Actually, it was it was like, like you want to hear cool. I think that was kind of a cool cool concert because uh, he played the whole show with his back to the audience. <laughs> the whole wow. the whole show. Wow. He turned around a couple of times. He had things printed on on. He had these words printed on pieces of cardboard, and he would turn around and flash them to the audience. He had about three or four of them during the whole show, and it, it was words that had it wasn't t song titles or anything like that. It was just moods or something, you know. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I really find remarkable about him, and I alluded to it earlier, is just the courage of his convictions musically. Like he would, as we've talked about, you know, he pushed the boundary, continued to push the boundaries of jazz, and at some point in the early seventies was. Of, of course, being very influenced by, he was listening to Jimi Hendrix and, you know, people like that. And he was drawing inspiration from them and taking that into the studio, which is remarkable. I think at one point um, he was uh, cutting tape into tape loops, much like Robert Fripp became known for in the mid seventies, but was doing it, you know, five, six, seven years before him mm -hmm. and, and using that as a, um, uh, uh, as sort of the base architecture in building Stockhausen you know, 20 years before that so. well there you go <laughs> but that but that he was unabashed in pushing the boundaries that he didn't care what anybody thought and in fact at a certain point in the 70s he was trying to get and find a broader audience to listen to his music. And he was opening for like Neil Young and Steve Miller. Um, I mean, that's yeah. got to be pretty courageous to go in front of a hard, um, a rock crowd and try to push jazz. I, I've, I've always had this feeling about jazz guys, you know, I love jazz, but I've always feel like guys like, you know, like a chick career, like they, they wish they could write a pop song. Oh, it's just, they, oh. they don't know how, and but that's their life ambition is to check out like i don't know for sure i can't swear but i just get this feeling that guys like that their goal in life was to write like 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 a song just like chicago or uh, uh you know like color my world or something like that they would they, they would that was that would be their dream but they can mm. they don't know how but they can play like faster than everybody else right you know <laughs> so we'll go with that you know fair enough <laughs> I've always thought that the best musicians in on the earth you've never heard. Okay? Mm -hmm. You never heard them. Because if somebody believes in their art and really, really believes in their art, what we've been hearing, we've been hearing the, the best guys, best musicians that are making a living off their music. That's what we hear. We don't hear the best musicians. We hear the best musicians that can make a living off it. Because I've always had this feeling that the guy, some, some guy who's really, really into music with his soul, doesn't he won't he won't want to sell it he doesn't need to sell it selling his music is just like it's not part of it it doesn't it doesn't enter the conversation because it's a it's more of an internal thing that it's all about how i feel about the music that i'm writing and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks i i'm i do a lot of like i i jam here and I'm, sometimes when i'm jamming i'm playing i'm playing music and i'm just saying, saying oh, i should be recording this i should be recording it and then i'm thinking like I'm, I'm happy enough just doing it for myself. You know, there's something about this. It's it's a spiritual thing. And it's just something about this that I think in, in the universe, that is enough, you know, that I communicate with my music. I think that's enough. I think that's enough. The, the, you know, 
trying to make a living off it that's another story that's another yeah. story you know it's like it's like it's it's as simple as you know like you know world music i mean what do we hear of world music what do we hear from other countries we hear their elton johns you know right right we hear everybody else's elton johns we don't we don't hear where their real music i mean if you consider elton john is the real music of north america then there you go but that's all we're getting from other things yeah it's really interesting um I can't thank you enough for spending the time with me and, and chatting about uh, hats and about uh, you and about uh, Miles and Justin. Um, I really appreciate your time. Uh, people looking for news, uh, they can just go to safetydance.com. Is that the best place for? Safetydance.com, Facebook. My Facebook page is always got the latest info too. And any idea when that, again, part three is coming out? Um, well, we're like like I was saying before, we're going to be putting out dropping singles now. So we're trying to get a single out. We're, we're, we've got a tour starting in Quebec, uh, beginning of next year, and so we're going to try and drop a single before then. Awesome. And uh, so that's what we'll do. We'll drop you know stuff and just package it and keep on going. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real treat. Thank you. Yeah, it's been nice talking to you. Thanks to Ivan for a fun and thought-provoking interview. Check out the latest Hats album, Again Part 2. It is absolutely brilliant. And check out all things Men Without Hats at safetydance.com or on Ivan's Facebook and Instagram at Ivan Doroschuk. Until next time, I'm Bernard Fraser saying please support local independent artists.